What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What we have on deck for today is I'm going to take a look at Jack Mahler's an interview that he recently did. Listen to that with you guys. It's uh, He's the one and only Jack Mahler's. But I do have a few things to say about what he is out there saying in the press. So then we're going to take a look at Janet Yellen and a quick little video of her testimony from last week in front of Congress where she's grilled about some positive insurance for small banks versus large banks and the risk of deposits leaving the small banks and going into the large banks. And then following on from that, the FDIC recently came out with saying, hey, we're looking at what it would take to insure all deposits, not just of the big banks. And that is a huge, huge problem. So let's jump into this. What you're seeing here is BitcoinandMarkets.com. Make sure you go there and subscribe to the free newsletter that came out yesterday. And then this morning, I released Market Pro number seven, where I look back at some of my recent predictions from the first few issues, how those have come to pass or not. It's been really good, actually, the last, uh, I would say, two months of my price predictions since I've launched this Market Pro. What I did was I took all of my publicly available forecasting and I'm putting it onto a private forecast letter. So you guys can sign up for that at BitcoinMarkets.com. That's an easy way to support the what I do here. Um, you can get 50% off your first month by going to BitcoinMarkets.com forward slash pro 50. There's also another member tier there as well. And I appreciate everyone at, that is a member and helps me put out this content. It is almost 100% listener supported. I'm right now live streaming on YouTube at BTC Market Update. That's the new channel. It's just a few months old. My old one was terminated and now I have a new one. Telegram as well, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. That's kind of my home base where I do most of my posting throughout the day. I don't do a lot of posting on Twitter, but I'm also broadcasting on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. So you can follow me on all of those platforms and, you know, get your full daily dose of Bitcoin and Markets. All right, let's get into Neil Jacobs, one of my, you know, he's becoming one of my favorite content creators in Bitcoin. He has the Inside Bitcoins podcast. He does a lot of t-shirts and stuff in Bitcoin. He's doing good work. He's a strong Bitcoin maximalist. He's he's more resolute, zealous about Bitcoin maximalism, even to a greater extent than I am. And I'm the first one to say Bitcoin is the only thing that matters in this space. It is the only decentralized thing. It's the only thing that will be around in 50 or 100 years. And I hate all altcoin scammers and shitcoiners and stuff. But Neil Jacobs, he takes it to another level. He's doing great work. But he has some good tweets. And so he's a great follow over there on Twitter. This is an interview with Jack Maulers that we're going to listen to and just comment on because uh, he does a great job explaining Bitcoin. But then he goes and takes it to the next level getting into my wheelhouse of the financial system. And he does have a good grasp of that. You know, his dad, I believe his dad ran the the CME for a while. And so he, he has a very high aptitude for, you know, financial stuff uh, in his family. And so he follows in the footsteps of his dad. But um, anyway, so we're going to listen to that. Let's um, make sure everything is up. Welcome back to Power Lunch. We spoke about it last hour, but Bitcoin has been rallying pretty hard lately. It's up more than 70% just this year. And our next guest says this is Bitcoin's moment. This is why the asset exists. Let's bring in Jack Mallers, the founder and CEO of Strike. I was going to say, have we seen your hair before, Jack, or has the hoodie typically been up? I'm, I'm waiting, you know, for the business suit for me to know that the crisis is over so I can see we're not there yet. Kelly, I got luscious locks, but I'll toss the hood on for you. How are we? The Fed is... <laughs> Man, he is just so calm and confident and great, great representative of the Bitcoin space and the up and coming generation representation of the new economy. And he's almost got this where you expect him when you look at him, you would expect him to be silly, like a silly kid or something. But he is extremely smart, extremely well-spoken. And I think that just goes a long way to representing what Bitcoin is. It's a little bit different way to think, but it's 
being done by really smart people, right? Okay, let's continue. Blown up our financial system. A hell of a Monday, huh? So do you think, okay, let me ask it to you this way, or put it to you this way. A, a mm -hmm. banking crisis is deflationary. And so when I see Balaji and others saying Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars, it may go up, but that may be because of the Fed's response here. The 2010s were not hyperinflationary. There's no obvious reason why now would be hyperinflationary either. Yeah. So, Kelly, it's it's actually not that complicated, and I'm excited to try and convey that to America. Okay. <laughs> Before he gets going on here, because he doesn't really answer the question all that well, but um, the it's great that she's pointing this out, right? The banking cri banking crises are deflationary. And that's what I have been saying over and over for years and years. Then people will say, oh, but the bailouts, that's printing money. Where's that money coming from? Okay, yeah, but A, that money has to be paid back. It has to come from somewhere. And B, that is just papering over a bigger hole. So if a hundred billion were destroyed, in the market and you only replace it with 25 billion the net change is still deflationary so, so that's b and then c the kicker is the contagion is the mental state of the market because credit depends on credit ratings and credit ratings are almost completely subjective yeah you can have a history of being good credit having good credit but if the market is tanking the people that are lending are going to pull back on their lending. And if that is where money printing happens, it's all about the psychology. The psychology is deflationary because it's pulling back on money creation. And you can't like the money that's being repaid today. It doesn't get printed today, right? It was printed in the past. And the amount that's repaid today is kind of locked in the amount of loans that are repaid every day that's locked in from, from history. So what we do going forward doesn't affect what's gonna be paid off in the future. So if the current level decreases, the net is going to also decrease or turn negative. More money will, more loans will be paid off than issued. That is definitely deflationary. So yeah, this, those three reasons are exactly why a banking crisis is deflationary. However, Bitcoin is a hedge against deflation and counterparty risk, which Jack doesn't get into. But let's listen to what Jack says here. Uh, there's a market term that's used here in Chicago a lot is demand finds supply. What do I mean by that? If Ken Griffin is going to want to buy the most expensive condo in America, someone will build it for him. Someone will put a 201st floor in Miami's tallest building. If silver is going to 1000 X, I will walk into my kitchen right now. I will melt all my silverware and I will sell it at market. If gold is going to rally, Elon Musk will find more on Mars. Bitcoin is, this is a super important point. Bitcoin is the only monetary instrument in the history of our species that is fixed. It does not matter how much more demand comes into the asset class, Kelly. No one will ever be able to make more of it. There are two things I can guarantee you in my life. One that I'll die and the other that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And those are what's the two things that I can only value as my life and my Bitcoin. So it is the only fixed supply asset, Kelly. It's not that complicated. It's going to go up because everything else can be issued more. Does that what? Okay, so very good points here. And I like how he said monetary instrument, monetary instrument, because there are other things that are fixed supply. The Mona Lisa is a fixed supply. Um, the Statue of David by Michelangelo, that is a fixed supply asset. It can be copied, right? And it can be even copied down to the atom. If we had like a printer that could print molecules and atoms, it could be copied. So you can say that it's not quite fixed, but it's also not a monetary instrument. So monetary instrument has to be divisible. It has to be portable. It has to be um, all of these other, you know, characteristics of what money should be. And those things are just rank very low on the monetary scale. Another thing is a piece of land, right? If I own a certain amount of beach frontage, that's a fixed supply asset. You know, if I own 500 feet of beachfront property, 
they're they're not making any i guess they can make more beachfront property in like dubai and stuff like you can't make more mount everest peaks okay that that is a fixed supply of thing something in in nature but it's not a monetary asset so i'm glad that he said monetary asset and his explanation was good there but it doesn't it still does not explain why a banking crisis is deflationary and bitcoin pumped okay so let's continue why is it why you've got to explain to me one thing why is the supply fixed and and is that because someone says it's fixed people are still so far behind i mean this is the power launch on cnbc and they've talked to bitcoiners for years probably going back 10 years i think they had roger vera on and stuff like 10 years ago and they still don't understand why the bitcoin supply is fixed i mean he is obviously older so, you know, it's harder for older people to wrap their brain around Bitcoin, but we're still very early. Who could change their mind? No, it's a great point and question, Tyler. Uh, it's because it's written in the software and the software is distributed. There is no one person to ask. There is no one person to trust. The whole decentralization, is it decentralized so that you could put pictures and NFTs on the blockchain? Is it decentralized so that you could fix gaming? No, it's decentralized so that the defendants of the monetary policy are distributed, is so that it's a network of computers that actually defend the policy and instrumentation of the monetary asset. That is not the case for Ethereum. That is not the case for any other altcoin. That is not the case for the US but, dollar. That is not but, the case for Miami real estate. That is not the case for precious metals. It is the, it is the only monetary instrument that has its monetary policy distributed and defended forgive in a sound me for being way. dense so but, you can but if you, you say that mm -hmm. that it's it's because this is the way the software is written and it is immutable it is unchanged why couldn't the software be rewritten or why couldn't the authors uh, of the software or the guardians of the software write a new software that creates bitcoin 2.0 uh with a with a with another supply of fixed supply of Bitcoin. Yeah. So Tyler, I run Bitcoin software uh, and someone tried to do this. I want you to Google Bitcoin cash after this interview is over. Someone said, I want to change the rules of Bitcoin. I may want to create more of a supply. I may want to make it faster. I may want to make it do a backflip. I may make it want to store pictures of monkeys <laughs> drooling on themselves on the blockchain. And they created it and they created new rules and they called it Bitcoin Cash. It's a different asset. It's a different instrument. And when someone tries to pay me in it, my software rules that I run in my home in a room over there says, nope, that's invalid. That thing is a piece of poop and I don't accept it because it is invalidating the rules of the system that were set out by Satoshi Nakamoto over a decade ago. So you can create whatever you want. You want to create FedNow coin, flip a dookie coin. I don't care. There's 21 million of the things that mm -hmm. I run mm -hmm. and that I protect mm -hmm. and that I save in. And those rules were started a long time ago. And that's what the network runs. So if you change mm -hmm. the rules, you're creating a different monetary asset and a different instrument. It doesn't matter. Okay. Great, great answer. Um, I might say something a little bit different, like who's in charge of the software on my node you would have to go to every bitcoin node and change that software and it's not set up like that to you know where when you run windows or you run android or whatever it pretty much does automatic updates uh, with bitcoin it's not set up that way someone has to physically come in and update your software to a different software um listening to this though a second or third time through is it made me think that one of the regulatory vulnerabilities, one of the surface areas of attack for Bitcoin would be regulating the Bitcoin software that you run. That's possible, you know, like say, hey, there is some Bitcoin, like under the Treasury Department in the future, they might have rules and regulations around what kind of what version of Bitcoin software your business can run, not an individual. But if you're Coinbase, you have to run uh, Bitcoin Core, you know, 35.2 or newer, and then they control what that version is. So that is a vulnerability in the future for these businesses. One other reason to hold your own keys and, and all of that. However, that would actually fork US Bitcoin away from global Bitcoin. Uh, so there are some intricacies there. But if there is, say, some globalist international institution left in 50 years 
that could be a possible attack vector on Bitcoin. So we'll just have to keep an eye out for that. But let's uh, continue with this interview. All right, guys, breaking in on the edit, I wanted to add a few more things, especially for people that are new to Bitcoin that are finding this podcast. And it's always good to go over these monetary arguments again. But the question is, why can't you just update the code? There's a lot of problems with this. First and foremost is the monetary property problem here of durability. One of the monetary properties that you want to maximize for is durability. And that's why if I buy a gold coin, I can be certain by common sense, by the laws of physics, by chemistry, that that gold coin is not going to turn into a copper coin. If I hold it for a generation, it's not going to turn into a copper coin. It's always going to be a gold coin. It's the same with Bitcoin. The consensus rules, the decentralization of the network makes sure that over a generation's time, that I'm still going to have a Bitcoin with the same monetary properties as it had originally. And if you change, if you fork, what it does is it reduces that durability. It reduces the long-term confidence in that asset. If they can change it after 10 years, then they can change it after another 10 years and another 10 years. And before you know it, 20, 30 years down the road, you have something completely different than what you originally invested in. The other problem is launching that new Bitcoin 2.0. How are you going to launch it? Are you going to fork from the original? So you copy all of the balances at a certain block height. You copy all those balances and you just make Bitcoin 2.0. That means that if I have two Bitcoins on the old system, I'm going to have two Bitcoins on the new system. Well, what am I going to do? I have now two assets where I had one. This new asset is less durable. The monetary properties are less certain. I'm most likely going to dump that and buy more on the old chain or on the original. And this, we saw this in Bcash. People dumped Bcash. There were ideological reasons, yes. But there was also very good monetary reasons to not hold Bcash. The only reason you would hold Bcash is through a hyper-speculative investment. So most of the time, people dumped their Bcash and bought original Bitcoin with it. And this would be the same way that the, a launch of a U.S. Bitcoin 2.0, that would have to deal with the same problems. And you're talking global. This is global jurisdiction, not just national jurisdiction. So how do you go about launching it? Do you start then from the Genesis block? Are you going to make it free and fair distribution? You know, so you launch from zero with no distribution and then you have some sort of staking or some sort of mining to have a free and fair distribution. That's a little bit out of the, the question as well, because those elites that are wanting to launch this new Bitcoin 2.0, they're not going to want to compete against Joe Schmo to mine Bitcoin or to do whatever. So how do you launch this new US Bitcoin 2.0? These are very fundamental questions to be being a Bitcoin maximalist and to understanding the superiority, not only in the current monetary properties of Bitcoin, but in the game theory, in the incentives of continuing with this Bitcoin. You can't just make a Bitcoin 2.0. It doesn't make sense. All right, let's get back into Jack. He's doing an excellent job. Uh, of course, this is a very quick interview and he can't get as in-depth as I can here on the podcast. You know, great stuff from Jack. Let's get back into it. Jack, did you guys have any effect from SVB's collapse? I know, like you said, you're in Chicago. I don't know if you had any exposure there as sort of a startup or obviously I would imagine uh, maybe some other, you know, colleagues, clients, you name it. Uh, what do you make of all this? Um, well, it doesn't matter, right, Kelly? Because 
the U.S. government, you either got to default on it or deflate it. And so they're backstopping everything. The spigots are wide open. Uh, money printers going burr. So it doesn't matter where your monies are held is that uh, the government's going to make you hold on it no matter what. So who cares? Uh, the only thing that's clear to us. And this goes into what we're going to talk about next um, with the FDIC insuring all bank deposits. Uh, but yeah, he nails it on the head here clear to our customers is you cannot hold and save in dollars anymore. I think that there's going to be a new era of the U.S. dollar where inflation will enter a normalized 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10%. The days of 2% inflation are over. What the if Fled, you're wrong, the Jack? Fed because really the, the market as you know. Okay. To, so he said that we're going to enter a new era of 5, 6, 7, 10% inflation or CPI or whatever he meant there. How? How exactly is that going to happen when the banking crises are deflationary and the system is based on credit? And when you have deglobalization and you have breakup of international trust and international institutions, um, how on earth is the global credit market going to expand at five to 10 percent? I'll let that hang. If the credit market is being crippled, how is it going to expand at 5 to 10% globally? It's not going to. The best that they can hope for is what they're doing now, bailouts. Extend and pretend. That is what we are going to see. And in that era of bailouts and and she points this out here in just a second which is again i think she's super sharp because she's asking good questions here it what we've seen recently is or what we've seen with bitcoin is that in a monetary shortage scenario at the end of a credit bubble where you're extending and pretending to try to keep the credit bubble inflated you see a search for a monetary alternative bitcoin is that search for monetary alternative and so when the banking crisis hits and there's deflation knocking at the door and happening in front of our eyes, I mean, people realize losses, right? Then you get a surge in the demand for monetary replacement. You get a surge in the demand for monetary value. And if you can find that monetary value in Bitcoin, that's a great replacement. It's a great alternative to the dollar because it can be sent anywhere. It can be cryptographically locked up, right? It can be there's all of these other fancy financial things that you can do with Bitcoin. And they haven't even scratched the surface on all of the different um, fancy financial tools that they can be that they can create through cryptography and through the Bitcoin network and stuff. And so it's a great alternative. So in the search for monetary value out there to replace this deflating system, you find Bitcoin and all of the money flows into Bitcoin. And as money flows into Bitcoin, it's actually going to create a worse problem because more and more dynamic economic activity will come be denominated in Bitcoin. All of the cutting edge green shoots will, will be found in Bitcoin and it won't be found in the dollar denominated economy that they need to expand credit. So credit will continue to waver. It will continue to shrink. Global credit market is cracking up and when that happens you need a monetary alternative so that that's how see the inflation narrative of bitcoin has got us into a trap and the trap is we're not in inflation we're in a deflationary grind now what now bitcoin isn't behaving the way you thought it was supposed to behave with high cpi well that's because a cpi isn't measuring inflation it's measuring cost and supply chains and, and things but it, it just gets you in a trap when bitcoin's primary thing is to hedge against inflation i think bitcoin's primary thing is to hedge against deflation against bank runs if we stress that narrative going forward then we get out of the trap that has been set or that we've set for ourselves okay let's continue the market is telling us we've gone from having, you know, expected three and a half percent inflation last year to just over two percent now for the next five years. Again, it's the it doesn't see inflation accelerating and picking up from here. Look at the swap lines we just instituted over the weekend. The, it, 
reiterates the dollar's dominance in the global financial system. And if anything, we're going to be averaging inflation for the next decade that probably looks a lot more like the 2010s we just came from. It was not inflation. And Bitcoin still did very well, by the way. It was not an inflationary period. Very, very good line of questioning here. The question is, why? Why did that happen? And I, it's just detailed out right there that, or I, I just talked about it, which is trust is breaking down. There's no highly productive uses of new credit. So every year you go, the debt burden gets disproportionately higher. And it doesn't matter if you print a trillion dollars, if your debt burden is a trillion dollars, because that money has to go to pay off that debt. And yes, it's misallocation of capital, but we're talking about money supply here. You know, the net money supply hasn't increased, but it's starting to sink in. I think this is great. You hear this type of stuff right here on CNBC talking about a return to post GFC normal. That's the, the term I have coined to describe what we're going to see here. We had a temporary transitory blip with COVID due to supply chains. And now we're going to return to a post GFC normal until the next crisis. And it could be a sovereign crisis in many countries. I mean, one of the things I shared on Telegram this morning is the, the riots happening over there in France. It's pretty crazy what's going on around the world, how long that this system can hold together. But until we get to that point, we're just going to return to a post GFC normal. And that's exactly what she detailed out here, that the market is pricing in 2% inflation for the next five years. She's probably talking about either uh, five-year break-evens, 10-year break-evens, whatever, um, you know, that that's what the market's pricing in. Yeah, but Kelly, the, the swap lines and treating these assets at par that these banks are holding is a load of crap. It's a politically correct way. The swap lines over the weekend were a politically politically correct way going into an election year for the Federal Reserve to bail out foreign big institutions and not take care of the little guy in the United States of America. Those things aren't trading at par. If they're trading at par, when I walk down to my bank on the corner and I said, I want my money, they'd be able to hand it to me. They can't, Kelly. So this is just a masquerade load of nonsense. If you, they, they have to backstop these things with new money and you're. Okay. So there's a different way, a different piece of the valuation. And I know he knows this, but there's obviously the face value of, or the, the, the mark to market value, whatever of these, these products. And for us treasuries, it's going to be pretty damn close to face value. Uh, but there's also the valuation of the counterparty. So even if that counterparty has treasury bills, like let's say three month treasury bills as collateral, they still, the bank, the lender still might not do business because of the threat of the counterparty. There's multiple things uh, involved here, not just the mark to market of these instruments, of these investments, of this collateral. So uh, very interesting though. Let's continue seeing risk on assets you're seeing scarce assets actually be big winners here so you could call it inflation because the cpi is a load of nonsense right like the government's going to tell me how the dollar is inflating based on a basket of instruments like my netflix subscription or my caesar salad doesn't actually tell me how well the dollar is doing or how much it's being devalued miami real estate does bitcoin does bitcoin's up over 50 percent this year yeah you're telling me that the dollar is not inflating you're out of your mind i'm not listening to that the, the, the Fed and the whole monetary system is based on trust, and they constantly, they constantly bake, uh, break that trust. It'd be the equivalent of there's a fire outside of my house. I smell the smoke, and someone's telling me, no, 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 it's just a bunch of teenagers putting on a bonfire. Okay, but I hear one one siren. I hear one police siren. Yeah. Are you sure it's a bonfire? Yeah, yeah, it's a bonfire. Now I hear 10 sirens, 100 sirens. Now my whole community is running out. I'm not going to get up and look outside the window, Kelly, and see what's going on. I don't believe them for a second. Yeah, I mean, this is the trap we've gotten ourselves into, is believing that everything is inflation and seeing inflation in every place. So his analogy of being told that the thing outside, it's like Plato's cave or whatever, being told outside that that's not really a fire that you need to be worried about. And then you hear the sirens and they, they tell you, no, no, no. Well, he's being controlled by a narrative in that story. And that's exactly what's going on. But does that story that those people are telling you, there's no fire, there's no fire. Does that actually control that there 
isn't a fire? No, of course not. It's there to control your psychological state, hoping that you'll act as if there's no fire, but that doesn't affect the market outside that's on fire, right? They're not controlling the market. That's the main point here. So all of this stuff where people blame the Fed, and I'm, I don't think the Fed necessarily needs to exist. I, I have been to end the fetter for a very long time, decades. <laughs> I'm getting old. It's been decades that I've been on the end the fed end the fed bandwagon. Gold and silver first, then Bitcoin, of course. But blaming the the Federal Reserve and the Treasury for everything. That is where I can't go with these people anymore. Breaking in on the edit, just have a little bit more to add here. Oh man, just to beat a dead horse. Okay, yes, Bitcoin has rallied 40-50% in the last couple of weeks, and then this year it's up about 70%. Okay, but what about 2022? If Jack is going to use this right now, how does he reconcile that with Bitcoin falling during the highest CPI times? Another thing is if you look and expand that to the entire entirety of Bitcoin's existence, the dollar is progressively stronger through that time that Bitcoin is also being monetized and going up. This is the danger of the inflation narrative for Bitcoin because we don't have a general inflation atmosphere. We have a general deflation atmosphere. So generally in deflation, the dollar is going, getting stronger. And Bitcoin is getting stronger as well because it's a monetary alternative. Now, some people might say, oh, well, the dollar is just measured against other weaker currencies. Well, that's not, that's not exactly the case either. I mean, you can look at commodities in general. You can look at other things like gold. Gold hit a high in 2011. That's 12 years ago. It hit a high of $1,920 or $1,920. And today, as I'm recording this, it's at 1970. But if you go back to the beginning of March, it was down at $1,800. 12 years and the price of gold has gone down? Okay, well, people might say, well, there's manipulation. Okay, well, let's look at some other commodities. How about oil? It's not at all-time highs. It's trending down on a grand scheme, you know, grand scale. All of these things. The only commodity that I know of that has hit new highs is copper. And it was just marginally new highs during this COVID crisis. And there was some extenuating circumstances like China was hoarding copper during that time. So all commodities. We can look at a commodity index. Let's look at a broad commodity index. Here is Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. And I will put these charts in the show notes for you guys. The Goldman Sachs Commodity Index hit a high back in July of 2008. It did not even reach that new high in this COVID crisis. And it is now down. It is down. I mean, we can measure how high it is off, how far down off of the highs it is. The commodity index is 35% off the highs right now, which it did, wasn't even a new all-time high since 2008. So if you put, put like a least squares fit line here, you would see that over the last 15 years, the commodity index has trended down against the dollar. Down. So you have to reconcile a strengthening dollar, commodities going down against the dollar, everything going down against the dollar basically over the last few years, except for asset price inflation, which I have described elsewhere. And you have Bitcoin rising. Okay, so Jack is just using the last few weeks to argue this, and this is exactly like other people do. Other Bitcoin skeptics use big crashes to dog on Bitcoin, just like Bitcoiners will use the last few weeks to pump up Bitcoin. There's all sorts of things going on. But anyway, I had to throw that in there, and I think I am the only one in Bitcoin. I'm the only one pretty much in the world to have a comprehensive view of this. To have a, an understanding of what's going on. That is what I think is happening. The market chose this. The market chose this. There, there's an old saying, and I don't remember exactly who it came from. 
Government depends on the consent of the governed. Seriously, you can rise up and throw off your government and you don't need all that many people if it's that bad, if it's that bad. Same thing with the financial system is if enough people didn't want to use the dollar anymore, there has been alternatives for them forever. They would have stayed in gold and silver. They would go to Bitcoin right now. All you'd need is like 10% of people to flood into Bitcoin. You know, we'd be sitting on a $100 trillion asset class right here with Bitcoin. And the world would be changed. But that doesn't happen because the market chooses this. The market chooses what we have today, how we got here even. Same thing, if the market didn't want these bailouts and didn't agree with these bailouts, majority of people would rise up and say, hey, bankers, hey, treasury, Fed, president, you did these bailouts, we don't like this, you're gone. But they don't do that. The market chose the way it is. And I'm not saying if that's good or bad, but if you trace back how we got here, after World War II, we went on Bretton Woods and we were on a gold standard, but there's all this new technology that was coming out and really transforming the economy, television, telephone, pretty much telecommunication stuff. There was advances in uh, materials. All of this stuff came out and created a ready-made market for more credit. And that's what exactly what happened in the world is that they were able to use credit to productively expand the economy. And they wanted credit because let's say your country, country X, you want loans because you want to provide these things for your people, these highly productive uses of this borrowing. That's what you want to provide to your people. And it's highly profitable to do so because if you, you know, you've heard of the leap forward or the, the, leapfrog effect or whatever, that a lot of these countries didn't have to put in landline telecommunications. They can go straight to 4G or 5G now. And that's what a lot of them did. And that's highly, highly productive. But once you do that, the next use is less productive. The next use of the marginal credit is less productive and less productive and less productive. We don't have similar breakthroughs that we had in the 20th century. And we probably won't. So no, the people, the market chose a money that was highly elastic and could expand with credit. And that's what drove us to 1971. And that's what drove the economy after 1971 to continue to accelerate with an expansion of credit all around the globe in every corner of this globe. And the market chose it because it worked. But in a period on the flip side of the coin, when you have deflationary pressure, and you have bank failures everywhere, and you have no productive uses of credit left, and everyone's swamped and burdened with all of this over indebtedness. Now the market's gonna choose the opposite. They're gonna choose a less elastic, the most inelastic supply that they can find. And that's gonna be Bitcoin. So that's the flip side of the coin. And I don't know how I got onto this, but I like going, walking through this, this argumentation for new people that find the content and they can see what I'm talking about on a daily basis, but um, I don't know how I got to this with Jack Mahler. Let's continue. I think there's just a minute left. You've got to be absolutely crazy to believe the Federal Reserve right now. They're full of it, and I don't have to because I own Bitcoin. There's no one that could deflate my instrument. I get to hold it, save in it. I know the monetary policy. I sleep like a baby, like the baby face that I am. Jack. I think you're crazy if you believe the Fed and these swap lines and treating these assets at par. It's a gimmick. It's a scam. We appreciate your time today. Jack Mallard <laughs> of Strike. All right. Like I said, great um, ambassador for Bitcoin. Just wish he could get out of that inflation trap that he is in. But let's talk a little bit more about this Janet Yellen stuff. So we touched on it there. And it was the, the, the fear that, well, let's just watch the clip because he actually details this out pretty well. And then I'll comment. Start with some of the banking issues we're dealing with on it. Will the deposits in every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of their size, be fully insured now? Are they fully recovered? Every bank, every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of the size of the deposit, will they get the same treatment that SVBP just got 
or Signature Bank just got? A bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority, a supermajority of the Fed board, and I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure to protect uninsured depositors would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. So what is... Okay, so she is not on board yet that the market doesn't care about inflation anymore. (laughs) CPI is a dead story. The market cares about their deposits. They care about the deflationary banking crisis. And so what she was... The reason why she went through and detailed out, it needs to be a supermajority FDIC, supermajority of the FOMC, a supermajority, you know, all these things, um, is because... It is a high bar. And she's trying to, I guess, uh, reinforce that they're not going to print willy-nilly and bread around all of these promises to make everyone whole because that's that would be highly inflationary. That's what she's thinking. But the market has already forgotten CPI, people. The market has already forgotten it. It doesn't care. They would much rather have 5% CPI than bank failures every week. The market doesn't care about CPI anymore. That's the old story. Now we're on to the next thing, and that is this. And she misspeaks here because he drills down, and, and she realizes, I think, on the next line, of the next question he asks, she realizes, oh, crap. This has put, put us in a really bad situation. Is your plan... that determination... Right. right. So, so what is your banks. plan to keep large depositors from moving their funds out of community banks into the big banks. We have seen the mergers of banks over the past decade. I'm concerned you're about to accelerate that by encouraging anyone who has a large deposit in a community bank to say, we're not going to make you whole, but if you go to one of our preferred banks, we will make you whole at that point. Oh, crap. <laughs> Look, I mean, we're, that's certainly not something that we're encouraging. That is oh, my gosh. She's right like, now. we effed up. That is happening because depositors are concerned about the bank failures that have happened and whether or not other banks could also um, no, it, it, fail. No, it's happening and because it's, you're fully insured no matter what the amount is. If you're in a big bank, you're not fully insured if you're in a community bank. Well you're not fully insured and you, you okay so that is that uh i thought it was pretty entertaining when she's like oh my gosh i just messed this up guys um the issue is right that people have million a million dollar deposit they're going to move it to the big banks because it's free insurance and she didn't realize this (laughs) she didn't realize the worry was deflation that the worry had gotten to this point yet and there, on that second question, you can tell when she just stops, oh, do, 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 because she didn't even think that that was a possibility. Okay, so this is a story that I picked up on, and it came out, when was it, this morning? U.S. studies, how to guarantee all $18 trillion in U.S. bank deposits. After repeated laments by the likes of Bill Ackman, who most recently said that, quote, I continue to believe that the best course of action is a temporary FDIC deposit guarantee until an updated insurance regime is introduced, end quote. And who just flip-flopped on his Fed must hike with shock and awe call from 2022 and is now urging the Fed hiking pause. And I did also share that this morning in Telegram about Bill Ackman saying, hey, they need to pause here and say, it's a temporary pause, but this is just signaling. It's arbitrary signaling. Why not signal another arbitrary way? And then I detailed out what I think is going to happen tomorrow with the, the Fed rate hike. But anyway, let's continue with this. And following a Bloomberg Weekend report that U.S. mid-sized banks demanded a two-year total deposit insurance scheme from the FDIC and warned if it doesn't arrive, there may be lots more shotgun weddings or shotguns. Moments ago, Bloomberg reported that, quote, U.S. officials are studying ways they might temporarily expand FDIC coverage to all deposits, a move sought by a coalition of banks 
arguing that it needed to head off a potential financial crisis. All right. The BBG Bloomberg report explains that, quote, Treasury Department staff are reviewing whether federal regulators have enough emergency authority to temporarily insure deposits greater than the current $250,000 cap on most accounts, end quote, without formal consent from the deeply divided Congress. And goes on to note that, quote, authorities don't yet view such a move as necessary, especially after regulators took steps this month to help banks keep up with any deposits for withdrawals, end quote, which is an important caveat and is the same one that hawks are using to justify why a Fed pause would be self-defeating. The same question can be applied to the Treasury. What does the Treasury know that we don't know? So, yeah, they're instantly going and overreacting, I think, to the line of questioning that Yellen got there that we just listened to. They're like, holy crap, this is a problem. Boom, they they did this working group or working paper, whatever. They come out with a study saying that this is possible. They have a coalition of banks petitioning, saying we need this insurance now. These All of our customers are withdrawing their deposits over 250000 is going to crush us. There's contagion. I think this, the speed of this and what the Treasury knows that we don't know is that the Treasury was blindsided by this. The central planners are ignorant. I don't know why people think that there's this huge central planning conspiracy to dominate the world and yada, yada, yada. Maybe there is, but that doesn't matter because they're inept. They can't change the laws of physics. They can't change human nature. Maybe temporarily they can, but they can't change human nature. They can't change hardcore resource constraints. So it doesn't matter what they plan. They're, they're going to fail. It's guaranteed to fail. And so anyway, this is just an example of how these central planners didn't see it coming. That's what... It's actually the opposite. It's not what the Treasury knew that we didn't. It's what we knew that the Treasury didn't. And it caught them majorly off guard here. Let's continue. Most likely nothing, after all, bank crises are nonlinear. But as Bloomberg notes, quote, still, there are developing, they are developing a strategy out of due diligence in case the situation worsens, end quote. Quote, we will use the tools we have to support community banks, White House spokesman Michael K said without directly addressing whether the measure is being studied, quote, since our administration and the regulators took decisive action last weekend, we have seen deposits stabilize at regional banks throughout the country, and in some cases, outflows have modestly reversed. Still, the report notes the behind the scenes deliberation shows there are concerns in Washington's corridors of power as mid-sized banks call for broader government intervention after three lenders collapsed this month when uninsured depositors pulled their money. And as a fourth firm strives to avoid a similar fate, shares of that one, First Republic Bank, tumbled an additional 47% on Monday as industry leaders tried to find a way to bolster the company's finances. Okay, that's the theory. What about the practice? After all, as regular readers know, there are 18 trillion in total deposits, all of which will have to be insured, and just 125 billion in the FDIC's deposit insurance fund, which makes an outright guarantee of all deposits just a small mathematical impossibility. Well, there's always printing. According to Bloomberg, one legal framework under discussion for expanding FDIC insurance would use the Treasury Department's authority to take emergency action and lean on the Exchange Stabilization Fund, the same magical Exchange Stabilization Fund which the Treasury is already using to backstop its latest bank bailout facility, the Bank Term Funding Program. Here, too, there is a small problem. The Exchange Stabilization Fund pot of money is used to buy or sell currencies and provide financing to foreign governments. A bigger problem. The Exchange Stabilization Fund only has $25 billion. <laughs> Any mechanism using the Exchange Stabilization Fund as a bailout mechanism uses the cash for the fund as a first-loss equity tranche to which the Fed 
then applies leverage, lots of leverage. Because if authorities plan on backstopping the $18 trillion in total U.S. deposits, the Fed will never cover the difference of some $17.975 trillion unless Congress reaches a bipartisan deal to infuse more capital into the Exchange Stabilization Fund, the same way the ESF was expanded to $500 billion during the COVID crisis. Meanwhile, in keeping with the, the tradition of saying the polar opposite of what it is doing, a Treasury spokeswoman said in a statement that, quote, due to decisive recent actions, the situation has stabilized. Deposit flows are improving and Americans can have confidence in the safety of their deposits. Yeah, what else are they going to say? Why even say anything? Well, they have to say something. So they're going to say this. Why even report on it? But anyway, which of which of course explains why First Republic is about to join the collapse contagion and why Treasury is planning a full deposit backstop. Finally, such a program will likely have to also be the result of an executive order since it, since it has little hope of passing in Congress where members of both the left and the right will vehemently be vehemently against it. All right. As the Chicago Fed wrote in a paper in 1986, after the deposit runs at Penn Square National Bank and Continental Illinois Bank, uninsured deposits are a source of market discipline for banks. Herbert Bayer and Elijah Brewer go forward warning that going away from insured deposits, i.e. by insuring every deposit as is being considered currently, would actually increase risk in the banking system. All right, so that's that's the important point there at the end, that this is a moral hazard. This is adding moral hazard into the system. It's adding increased risk of bad behavior by the banks. And that having banks fail is actually a part of the market discipline mechanism for banks. But what do they do? Again, the credit, the entire credit system is near collapse. I think they can kick the can. I mean, they can just say you can't withdraw, right? They can make a banking holiday or they can do some facility for the FDIC to directly fulfill withdraw pledges, you know, from people and stem the tide. They can do a lot in that respect. It's also, I'll remind people, it is the time of year. If they can just get through March into April, I think that this really goes under the rug and we won't have to worry about it until end of Q3 because end of Q1, end of Q3, those are the peak periods for these type of crises. I am expecting something similar at the end of Q3, but in the meantime, we're going to see stocks and Bitcoin rally pretty hardcore into the middle of the year. So, all right. So that is where I'm going to leave it today, guys. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to leave the mic open for a few minutes over there on Telegram. So guys, stick with me over there. Check me out on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, Telegram, t.me, forward slash Bitcoin and Markets, and on YouTube, BTC Market Update is the name of the channel. All right, guys, thanks for joining me and I'll check you on the next one. Bye.